Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Ed Keeley is one of the most enduring figures in an enduring genre. He waded into the UK's busy drum and bass landscape in his late teens by starting a fanzine, and the man later known as Friction made his name as a DJ before starting up the Shogun Audio label in 2004. As well-known in A&R as he is a selector, Keeley has used his imprint to launch the careers of some of the genre's most important young artists, including Alex Perez, Icicle, Rockwell, and Spectrosoul. Shogun's emphasis on releasing fully considered albums, with detours, diversions, and plenty of pop-worthy songcraft, also reveals a healthy interest in crossover. Zigzagging between big tent festivals and small clubs around the world, with a regular gig on BBC Radio 1 in between, it'd be no small exaggeration to say that Friction is one of the most influential figures across drum and bass's many fragmented subgenres and scenes. Ten years into his label's run, he recently caught up with Andrew Rice in London. First thing I wanted to say was congratulations on the 10 years of Shogun Audio. It's quite a milestone. Yeah, thank you, man. It's pretty crazy, really, to think that it's 10 years down the line. That's gone, it's gone very quickly, I'll put it that way. But before we talk about that, I wanted to go back a little bit. You used to run a fanzine, is that right? Yeah, when I first started out, kind of, you know, as a drum bass DJ, jungle DJ, you know, wannabe sort of DJ back in the day when I was kind of going out to raves and listening to the likes of Randall, Hype, Andy C, Dr. S. Gachet, like they were kind of my initial kind of, you know, big DJs I wanted to aspire to. And it was one thing I sort of looked at was that it looked pretty hard to break into and get sets, you know, to get warm up sets at places. And you know, it was a difficult thing. And what I kind of had sort of worked out was that you needed something else to do so I started off this little fanzine and it was great it was kind of like a um, south coast of England drum and bass fanzine kind of thing and it kind of got me through the door so to speak with a few people I met people like Clayton from Renegade Hardware Records and you know I had shy effects doing dub plate reviews and stuff like that and you know, I never made a single penny out of it. I think my mum and dad bailed me out a couple of times because like the advertising, because it was free and the advertising money, that revenue that I'd got in wasn't quite actually even getting anywhere near to the cost of producing this, you know, it was just like one of my little pipe dreams. But it was brilliant and it, and it got me through the door, man. I wasn't any, you know, a particularly great journalist. I probably could have done decent at English at school if I wasn't going to raves basically so um yeah that was my kind of foot in the door as they say how old were you when you started it i was like i was just leaving school i was 17 maybe something like that like it's a long time ago man how did you get so into drum and bass in the first place 
it just kind of captivated me. I haven't really got some kind of, you know, any particularly amazing out there story. You know, I just basically started collecting flyers because I was too young to get into raves and I looked really young, which everyone used to go, oh, don't worry, you'll be pleased about it when you're older and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, at the time I just wanted to go to raves. You know, I was kind of captivated by the music, you know, and um, yeah, that was kind of going to there and, and seeing those people and everything. That was that was the big thing for me. So, and, and hearing those DJs. And once you got your foot in the door, what was the next step? I mean, it's a very hard scene, you know, any DJ, producer, you know, even promoters and stuff, you know, having success within the music industry and, and the underground music industry, especially is, is tough. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people trying to do what you're trying to do. And I was always very kind of dedicated, you know, when I was like 17, I would go to raves, you know, I'd hand out flyers, I'd try and get in with the promoters. You know, I, I was kind of that old school world it was very different to things, how things are now, even though I, my success kind of came after jungle when it was more of a drum and bass scene and you know there were acts like bad company and ed rush and optical kind of doing their thing it took me quite a long time to to manage to break through but you had to have the sort of drive to get in there and yeah it was it was tough man in just giving tapes and you know saying to promoters let me play let me play i think my first ever gig that i did was in brighton at a night called legends of the dark black which was one of brighton's original drum and bass jungle nights and i got paid for that a fiver that was my first first ever fee man which actually i lived near crawley in gatwick kind of way which that didn't actually cover my petrol there and back for the gig so essentially it was costing me money do you know what i mean i was doing two or three pirate radio stations every weekend you know i would drive in you know my clapped out little Renault Clio I think I'll drive to Kent to do one station to Essex to do another station and then to Cool FM in London to go and play there you know I was basically spending all my money just so people could hear me if there was like you know messages phone calls coming in and shouts on the phone to me that was a bonus because it meant that people were actually listening it's like I'm making progression I'm making headway do you know what I mean it was it was a hard thing to break into man yeah, I mean, it's such a busy time for what's a really packed scene. How do you make a name for yourself and kind of set yourself apart when you're young and just starting out? I think you've got to have the drive, but I think you've got to have something about you that was different. You know, I came through as a DJ. That was what I did, you know, whereas now a lot of the time you'll get guys that come through because of their music that they've made because of their tunes. They might not be particularly into DJing, but they're like, hey, I'm, I want to get paid. You know, I want to go and do some DJ sets. Whereas what I did was make my name more as a as a DJ. And yeah, oh, this this kid can mix, you know what I mean? Whereas over recent years, things have sort of gone forward and I've sort of progressed my career as a producer as well. So I kind of did things backwards. But yeah, I'd say as far as actually breaking through, that was my thing really. Just hustling and yeah, trying to put, put it out there, have the best new tunes and, and mix really well. So when did you start producing? I've produced over the last... My first track was on Trouble on Vinyl, which was a sister label of Renegade Hardware, about... Oh, God, that was probably like 
14 years ago. That was the first time I made you. Oh, I'm going to feel really old now, man. But that was the first tune that I released a track called Photon that Stacker from Under Fire Records, which is also based in Brighton, he engineered that for me, basically. Like I say, I was more of a DJ. So I was doing with DJing. I never really took production that seriously. You know, I had a few tracks on Renegade Hardware, on Valve, on Hospital and all that kind of stuff over the years. But it was only the last sort of four or five years where I really got my head down, learned to engineer, you know, mix music. And that's when I would say, you know, that's when I've been a sort of more of a serious producer, even though I had tracks over the years, but it was all quite scattered, you know. What made you want to start producing in the first place? At the beginning, it was, you know, really, I suppose it's kind of, people would say it's the wrong reason. You know, I was like, I want to be a DJ. I was very fixed on DJing, but if I'm going to be successful, I'm going to need to release some tunes. So I kind of got luckily that I knew people I could get in the studio with and I just pushed things forward and, and release some tracks. You know, like I was always better back in the day, you know, doing tracks as a collab. You know, I couldn't, didn't really have much engineering skills, but I knew what I wanted to make. And I think for other producers, you know, I was quite lucky to have people around me like Stacker from Under Fire Records. And then, you know, some of the guys at Renegade Hardware, Keaton from Usual Suspects. And then on to when I was releasing stuff on Valve, you know, very lucky to be working with Dillinger. And it was Dillinger that really showed me, right, okay, look, you can do this all in your laptop. You can get Logic. You know, you don't need any extra outboard stuff. You can mix a tune down in Logic and... That was when my stuff on Valve, like Play the Game and Nemesis, that all sort of came out around then. And that was a big thing for me because that's when I first started saying, right, this is how you engineer and, you know, you make tunes. And he taught me so much. And that was a big sort of help to me. But, yeah, I would say properly being able to sit and make a tune from start to finish, that process began about six, seven years ago, really. Did those early few releases boost your profile as a DJ? Yeah, 100%. That was kind of in my mind what I wanted to do. I, I was interested in production, but I didn't have the brain. I was so much going on. You know, I was really young. I just had a kid. I had a full-time job. I was trying to be a DJ. I didn't really have any room left to learn how to produce. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it was nice to have those tunes out, and they definitely did help. You know, I was releasing tracks on Renegade Hardware, Trouble on Vinyl, Under Fire, True Players, DJ Hypes label. You know, that was, yeah, it was a big thing for me. It helped me a lot. What was your full-time job? Oh, wow. So basically I was like 20 years of age, found out that I was having a, a son. Big up, Charlie. If he's listening, you know, like, you're like, what am I going to do? Okay, I've got to get a job. You know, at that time I was living at home. I just wanted to be a DJ and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got a full-time job at the Sunglass Hut at Gatwick Airport was doing shift work at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, staying up all night trying to get hold of tunes or network people or try and get gigs, you know, like I was seriously on the hustle. I left that job and worked as a car salesman for a bit. And I really enjoyed that. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, it, that was cool, you know, and it was at a point where I had to make a decision where they offered me a sort of a, a promotion to a manager or whatever. And it was like, right, I've got to make a call here. Do I take this and be Mr. 9 to 5 and forget about this DJ and stuff and drum and bass and all that kind of stuff? Or do I actually, you know, kind of roll the dice, so to speak, and give it a go? And I gave it a go. Didn't go down too well with the missus when I, when I dropped that one, man. What made you want to roll the dice? I just felt like 
you know, some people it suits, you know, you go to work every day and you get up at seven o'clock and you get changed, you eat your Cheerios and you get in a car and you go to work and you try and hit your targets and you come home at six o'clock and you watch TV and you go, I'm not really that type of guy. I didn't really want that to be the rest of my life. I wanted to try and chase what I wanted to do, which was be a DJ. So it was a bit of a gamble. And like I say, it was sort of struggling for money a lot. It was tough. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, things started picking up and won a couple of, you know, best DJ or best newcomer DJ awards at, you know, various different award things, whatever. And things started taking off and it was like, I might actually pull this off. So when you're trying to DJ full time and you barely have time to, to produce, then what made you want to start a label in 2004? It was really a case of, okay, so I'm getting some gigs now. People are actually booking me. I'm getting paid more than five pounds to DJ. You know, this is kind of uh, starting to sort of take off. You know, I'd really like to have my own label and kind of, you know, have a label there to sort of release music and stuff and, you know, release any music that I was making you know, and maybe sign some artists. And, you know, I was just starting to make quite a bit more at the time. I was doing tracks with KT, who was also part of Under Fire Records and he'd done stuff on Ram Records with Stacker. And we were making quite a lot of tunes and, you know, it was kind of like, how do we put these out? And yeah, so Shogun was born, basically. Where did the name come from? The name was... It's funny because so many I, I read so many things online and people looking into the the logo and trying to kind of decipher what it means and you know it's nothing more than having a, a shogun army you know I wanted to make shogun an army and the shogun army was a big thing you know historically and I wanted to have that as the crew you know it was shogun warriors and that type of thing it just felt right as a as a plan as a concept for the label. And um, I was sitting with SPMC, who's, you know, so, he just, the most passionate people about music that I know. I was like, man, I need to come up with a logo, with a with a concept, you know. And he was a graphic designer. He left a full-time graphic design job to be an MC. So, and we'd go out and do gigs with each other. So he kind of came from the same sort of thing as me. And he came up with the logo and was like, yeah, it's this symbol and, you know, it's in a Japanese sort of style, but it's really just a symbol of a person. And that's all it all it was, really. And it just, yeah, it just all sort of clicked and worked from there. And what was the process of actually starting the label up at that time like? Oh, man, I was winging it. Like, literally, like, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. You know, it was just like, I managed to get the parts through a friend of mine, Jay Frenzik, who ran a big drum bass magazine called ATM which is really popular. Anyway, he'd managed to get hold of the parts of a track called R-Type by Joe, which was an old jungle rave track. Anyway, he said, oh, do you want to do a little update mix of it? You know, not like a proper remix, more of a sort of brought up to speed for that sort of time. Anyway, we did that, got the rights to release the original as well. So release the, had the rights to release the original and the remix. So it was like, okay, well, this is going to be the first Shogun track, you know, released to come out and yeah. Jay sort of helped me you know he knew about a lot of the organizational type stuff and like I say it was it was getting through with help from my friends really do you know what I mean because I really did not know what I was doing I just wanted to be in a club mixing that's you know that was all the, you know and they helped me with that and yeah that was Shogun was properly born had the first release and 
I think the second release was a, a track by me and KT. And then things just started rolling from there. Did it come pretty naturally once you started it? Yeah, it was, I kind of thought this is kind of working pretty well. And, you know, and people have said to me, you know, I, I think I've got a natural knack for spotting a tune and I enjoy the A&R process, especially with drum and bass, you know, like I enjoy hearing a tune and picking out things that could make it better or, you know, kind of improve it in some way or whatever. And it was really good because, you know, I was doing this label and there was no rules to it. I was just kind of like, I'm going to release what I want. I'm not going to have a dancer or DMB label or a deep DMB label because I actually, I actually really hate labels within a genre. I'm not really a fan. I just like it's drum and bass. Drum and bass is a genre with lots of different styles to it. That's kind of the way I've always looked at things. You know, I like stuff that makes people dance. I like stuff that makes people sit and listen and go, "Oh, that snare sounds sick." Do you know what I mean? I, I like everything. It worked really well because I was just kind of people sending me tunes by this point. You know, some of the people, including the likes of Alex Perez, Icicle, etc. And we're just releasing the music, man. And, you know, working with these guys and helping develop them. Found Spectra Soul on the way as well. Dave was actually my first employee, Dave from Spectra Soul. He was the first employee of Shogun. He, he was like label manager and he really helped get things sorted and organized as well. While he was doing the label manager stuff, he was developing Spectra Soul with Jack and Spectra Soul was happening. He's like, right, we've got to put the tunes out on the label, boys. You know, like it was all a vibe. And, you know, Spectra Soul, Alex Perez and Icicle were doing their thing and they were all, we're all, it was a really cool crew. Do you know what I mean? And it was just, just worked well. We were like, wow, we've got a little thing here. You know, we've developed and there's sort of a sound that has naturally appeared that those guys were making. And yeah, it just built really well from there. As someone who considers themselves an A&R person, what, do you, what is it that you look for in a track? It depends, really, because you can hear a track and you can be like, wow, the production on this tune. It may not be the best track in the world, but sometimes you can hear a track and just the production on it will just make you think, wow, imagine it if this guy makes a tune that I actually really like the vibe and the melody of it, you know, so production's a big thing now, especially these days. You know, you want to hear production and you can say, well, I'm interested in this guy because if, like I say, if he makes a tune that I actually like, there could be real good stuff here. Is The other side of it is when you just hear a really cool tune and you can hear a really cool tune and it could just blow you away, but the production might not be right. So that's two different types of A&R development you have to sort of do there because... If the production's right, but the tune's not great, you're like, cool, write some more ideas, man. Just write some more ideas. And that's, you know, you develop those. Whereas the musical side of things is, is a kind of different emotion when you hear it because you think, if I can get this guy to get his mixes tight and, you know, it could be really, really onto something here. But mixing and production is, is a different thing because you can, especially these days, you know, there's people that can help with that, you know, so it's hard to sort of pinpoint what's the more important for me out of those two elements, you know, like, because they cause different emotions and, and make your brain work in a different way as to what you're going to have to do with that artist to sort of try and help them. So, yeah, it's production and, and just having something different musically. I think that's kind of the two things, the main things for me. You talked about sort of building a family. I think one of the most distinctive things about Chugnaudio is that you have quite a few producers who are very closely associated with the label 
um, maybe like four or five acts. Why is it important to you to have such a close roster of artists that release on Shogun regularly? I think it's important to have something where you're all working for the same the same goal, really. And if you've got people, you know, the thing with Alex Perez and Spectra Soul and Icy was that those guys all sort of came through around the same time. You know, they were making exciting music and it was just a good feeling to know you're all sort of in it together. You know, I was there kind of giving my advice on what I think the tunes needed. And I think it's just really important to have that sort of family vibe to a certain degree, you know, with a record label and label artists do change. Do you know what I mean? Things do change over time or whatever, but I think it's important to keep it close together, especially if the music, you know, is predominantly underground. I think, yeah, if you've got a big, you know, Sony Universal or, you know, a big indie like Ministry of Sound, it's a sort of different vibe. But with the, if the music's underground, I think it's important to have artists talking between them. Do you know what I mean? And sort of just being in touch and just having that bit of a sort of family vibe, man. What makes Shogun Underground? Because I think a lot of the tracks release kind of like straddle the line between more like pop-oriented material and more underground bangers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if pop would be my word to sort of... Describe. I think we've probably, you know, we've probably had a couple of sort of more crossover tracks over the years, but I would say that those crossover tracks were kind of completely by accident. There's never been any sort of like formula really like i say it's always just been you make a tune and if it's good let's let's work it and get it in there do you know what i mean but i think that it's hard to explain really because there's no like i say there's no pre-organized yeah let's let's have something that's more commercial sounding or whatever some tracks do cross over into that bracket but at the end of the day what i've always tried to do from an ar point of view kia kt who's you know co-owner of the label he has the same thing as well where it's just you just want artists to be able to express themselves and sometimes yeah that can come out in a different way you know you can have something that's very deep and they've expressed themselves in that way or they may kind of come up with something and yeah it might have a few more melodies in it might need a vocalist and the vocal comes in and you know i think what's important is that all the music is natural i think that if you force music that's when you you're going down the wrong road for me do you know what i mean and i think it all comes out wrong it seems to me that more with most drama based labels uh, albums are very important to shogun why is that i think it's important to develop artists and sometimes i think if labels are just throwing out loads of 12s from a certain artist from that particular artist or whatever i like it's hard to develop someone through 12s. If you take Alex Perez, for example, when he first came on board Chogan, he was writing, you know, he's writing 12s and he was doing 12s on different labels and stuff. And the sound was a bit kind of, you know, it was kind of funky rolling, kind of drum and bass, caliber influenced. And then as he progressed and he moved on, you know, he wrote his first album and that was more hip hop influenced and then his second album which is a lot more sort of half time a bit more experimental sounding and if i look at the music alex perez made when he first came on to shogun and compare that to what he was doing by the end of his second album he progressed do you know what i mean he, he found a new sound he he kind of went in a completely different direction and experimented and a it was important to sort of encourage that and let him do his thing and that's showed what a versatile, brilliant artist 
he could be, you know, especially if you listen to some of his stuff now on Exit and with Foreign Beggars and everything, he's he's really developed himself as an artist. And I think if Alex Perez had just released 12-inch records for six years, seven years, I don't think he'd be the artist he is now if he was just churning, you know, like, you've got to have those albums to kind of help create the journey, man. That's my, my take on it anyway. How closely do you work with the artists in terms of, like, guiding them and influencing them during the writing and recording of an album? It's quite uh, an intense process, and sometimes, uh, yeah, the the artist may not want to talk to you at the end of it, do you know what I mean, when you've kind of broken their balls for 18 months on an album. But, yeah, I mean, it's a case of a lot of the way I, I like to work is, you know, the guys will send me loops, send me ideas, early stages, and, you know, it'd be like, yeah, that one, that one, that one, really good. Like, definitely, you know, develop that and work on that. And they might develop those three tunes. Then they've got three sort of nearly finished tunes that might need a vocalist or might not or whatever. And that's kind of how it works, really. And you kind of help see it through towards the end and help out and give advice and just try and progress that music. It's brilliant, you know, the fact that someone can just email you a tune. And you can be in a taxi or you can be on a plane or whatever and you can give your feedback and work out and, and listen to those things. That's the one thing I love, you know, traveling and be able to kind of do my A&R stuff, sit on a plane and and feedback to the, for the artist in particular. It's, it's, I enjoy that, man. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite bits of the job. You must do a lot of work on the road, I imagine. Yeah, most of it. I've just stopped recently as far as like working on my own tunes, like I don't do that now on the road because I was just constantly working. You know, it's cool to sort of listen to a few tunes and do some A&R work, but as far as if I'm flying to the States or Japan or whatever, it's like kind of band studio work. So I'd be sitting on a plane, like getting stressed about not being able to get a snare right on a tune. You know, you have to take some time out and sort of get away from it sometimes. Yeah, a lot of my A&R work definitely is... Uh, on planes and trains and as someone travels a lot how do you keep yourself sane and rested and healthy because you have quite a schedule yeah i was bad before man like the last two years i've definitely kind of switched it up a little bit and actually tried to eat food that is healthy because before i didn't i would go to bed at five o'clock in the morning standardly in the week work all night you know like go to bed late, wake up late, eat terrible food or, you know, like donuts and just junk food and really bad stuff. And about two years ago, I kind of switched everything up, started eating really healthily, just basically, you know, kind of trying to get in the gym and just because it was bad, man. It was like, you know, you you do this and you have the late nights and you eat, but you don't feel great. Do you know what I mean? So, um yeah, just try to sort of have a bit more of a, a better lifestyle. And that's definitely helped. Like I say, you know, trying to take breaks from work rather than just working all the time. I think I was going to go mad if I'd have carried on like that. And how do you balance that lifestyle with having a family? Yeah, it's difficult. Like having a family and being an international DJ and music producer and being in the music industry, it's not ideal. Do you know what I mean? That's when I kind of think back and think, yeah, the nine to five option probably would have worked better stress wise for that. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, you're touring, you're being away from home a lot of the time. It's it's not that it's not easy, man. Do you know what I mean? But um, that was the path that, you know, chose to take. And I'm, I'm very sort of feel very blessed to have taken that path and 
been you know fortunate to to make a career from it do you know what I mean so uh, yeah I can't mind too much I do mind though uh, do, do you still get excited by touring and visiting new places and playing out yeah massively it's amazing you know going to places like Australia or Japan or in China recently and Beijing it's amazing you know getting to play music and you go to some of these places and people can't believe you're there it's kind of like yeah I can't believe I'm here either because I'm kind of feel so lucky to you know come here and play music and yeah it's 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 great I love the traveling you know and it's 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 very different you know you can go to certain places like I can go somewhere in Europe for a massive festival and then the next day you know there's 5000 people there whatever and then there was one recently where I went and did a a small club in Salzburg club was actually drilled out of a mountain it was inside a mountain it was 300 caps sort or of club and I played at a festival played like a 45 minute set or something ridiculous like that and then gone into a small club and played really deep really techy for two or three hours to a small group and I love that do you know what I mean so a festival is one type of emotion that's amazing and you can it's just, you know, you're like, wow, you can't actually believe how many people are there. But it's a completely different thing playing for that length of time, playing that type of music and then being able to go into a club and like, right, I'm going to test out a load of new music that I don't get to play at a global gathering or a big kind of commercial festival. Yeah, I love those two different sides of what I do. So do you have separate sets of tracks depending on what kind of gig you might be playing that night? Or Yeah, 100%. If you hear me play at a big festival compared to a small club or say, for instance, play in London, you know, where the crowd, if I play a club night in London, you know, I'm going to have to go in and, and delve deeper in the box. Whereas, like I say, if it's an hour set at a big festival, you know, you're going in and the sort of the crowd are a bit less attentive is not a fair word to say, but, you know, they're a festival crowd. They kind of just want to be smashed out for an hour. And those club nights are brilliant because just being able to play that different music, you know, playing a like a two-minute loop and just sneaking that in and seeing if that goes down well, you know, that, that you can't really do that at festivals, you know, because you've got limited time. I do love it. And I think the club scene's so important. Like, I think it's kind of got lost a little bit recently. You know, like, everyone just goes on about festivals all the time and they want to go to this festival and that festival and there's these million DJs playing at this festival and... You just can't forget the club scene, man. It's like the underground club scene is so important to all dance music. And I do think it's, I don't know, it, to me, it just kind of seems to have got a little bit forgotten about lately. It's, you know, people are so much more on the festival thing and you're going to progress that deeper music. You want that to kind of, you want to nurture that and, and bring that out. And club scene is so important to that and we have to support our clubs. And you don't see anything wrong with having like two very different sides of yourself on display at once, like festival friction and club friction. Because, you know, for a lot of people, maybe outside your own base, that's kind of like people would use the word like, like sellout or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things that can happen. You know, people can say that. And I genuinely love the two different feelings. Do you know what I mean? I love going into a club and, and playing progressive, deeper music. You know, I'm not going to lie, I probably don't get as much of those sets now. You know, they're very refreshing when I get to do it, but I just love that feeling. But I also love the feeling of playing a big sub-focus record or a big chase and status record or a hospital tune or whatever to, you know, a high contrast record to, to loads of people. I genuinely have 
the most ridiculously wide music taste, you know, within drum and bass and within other music, you know, you can, I can be listening to Soundgarden and then when I want to chill out, I might listen to some more Chiba, you know, or I might listen to some Dr. Dre or some Schoolboy Q, you know, like I just have a wide music taste and that is the same within drum and bass, you know, like when I was starting to get those other shows, those bigger shows where, yeah, you're going to play more. You can call it commercial. You can call it big room, whatever you want to say, you know. Yeah, I did, you know, and there were some of my colleagues and people, you know, like friends in the industry that were like, oh, you're doing these big ones now, yeah? Oh, you're going in that direction, Ed, you know? And it's like, it's not something that I kind of plan. It was just something that I was sort of going with. People want to book me for that call. You know, I'm a DJ. I play to people and I'll select music to play to people. So... I enjoy that, like I say, the same way that I enjoy going a bit deeper and going deep and techie on people. Do you think that dichotomy affects or is represented in the label at all? It has done. It's fluctuated over the years in some releases. You know, we've had a lot of releases now. It's 10 years of music. So I would say that we've got a sound. We've always sort of had a sound. I'm referring back to Perez and Icicle and Spectral. That sound that to me, they sort of pioneered and they they really took that, you know, and a lot of people kind of followed with that sound and started doing stuff alongside that. That's great. And, and now and again, I do get people that say, oh, yeah, we just love the Shogun kind of militant, kind of funky rollers, man. Why can't you just release those all the time? Well, you can't just release those all the time because you wouldn't be changing, you wouldn't be progressing as a label. So I'd say that, yeah, sometimes that the sound can fluctuate with my taste, I think that's going to happen if I'm A&Ring a label and I'm out sort of performing every week. It it can happen, but all we really look for as far as a Shogun artist is someone with a serious technical ability. And once you've got that, if you like what they're doing and, you know, just let them be, be themselves. So, yeah, that will fluctuate the music. I'll say there's two things that would fluctuate the sound of the label is m what I'm doing and the artist, you know, like what they want to make at the time. So that is going to kind of change the sound a little bit for sure. Uh, you talked about progressing the label. How has the label progressed over the last 10 years? When I started the label, there was no preconception of what we're going to do, what this is going to be. And when Kia KT came on board about five years ago, he came on board as more of a sort of you know, he really brought business element to it. You know, we we got proper office and, you know, we started having digital marketing staff and, you know, I'm absolutely useless on that kind of stuff. Any kind of like organisational type skills or developing a business, I'm absolutely useless. I just hear music or play music and make music that I like, you know. That helped us develop as a business, have a proper offices, be able to have a studio that, you know, artists can come in and use if they want to have a little break from their studio or having those things are, are brilliant. And the label has progressed that way massively. Musically, we still try and keep the same format, you know, that you let the artists do their thing and just if the music's good and I'm, I'm digging it and I'm into it and it sounds good to me. I'm going to roll with it, you know. And I think that you would also say that the, the labels progressed from, you know, these acts that have developed their production skills. Like I say, when Alex Perez first sort of came onto Shogun and he was first doing his sort of thing and releasing on different labels as such, he wasn't as, as much of a polished artist. And I'm not for any, you know, second saying that it's because of me, but 
giving him the ability, giving him the sort of chance rather to express himself is is how he develops. You listen to his mixes now, you know, his mix downs, you know, I think they're they're up there with, you know, getting close to sort of noisier and, you know, face and people like that. That's what he wanted to do. And he can produce that type of thing, but he can also, you know, write some more deeper stuff. And the same way with Icicle, I think Icicle's progressed technically. He was always very technical, but if you listen to his new album, for instance, Entropy, it's, it's next level, the production. Spectrosoul, you know, they're doing their thing. We've got Joe Ford, who's 20, you know, and he's producing music. He can make make any type of music, man. And same with Forwards, you know, very talented artist. Rockwell, you know, these guys for me are just pushing the boundaries as far as production. Yeah, I think we've definitely... I'd like to think if you listen to the first three Shogun records and played the most recent three, you know, the production levels, you know, be crazy, crazy different. So, yeah, I think we've progressed in many ways. Obviously, there's a lot of talk, mostly from outside drum and bass, about how the market or the community is shrinking or irrelevance or just like its own its own little corner now. Mm. It's not really part of the wider dialogue. Has that affected the label at all or do you, do you find that that situation even exists? I mean, it's definitely harder. It's a different thing now. I think the the music industry is kind of a lot more corporate now. I think that, you know, if there's money to be made, the sort of major labels will come in a lot of the time and they'll sort of, they'll take that money. Do you know what I mean? They'll come in and they'll, they'll sort of do their thing. I think I think it's harder to make music that's not designed for the charts. I think that's harder. You know, there's it's harder to, to make money out of it and kind of get stuff out of it. Cause like I say, it's, it all seems a bit split these days, you know, like there can sometimes be a bit of a them and us attitude because things are sort of split. And like I say, you'll get the bigger labels, the more commercial labels taking like instantly going in and wanting to sign any drum and bass that's commercial. Whereas I, I don't have a problem with there being drum and bass that's commercial. You know, I think that if there's commercial drum and bass and there's underground drum and bass, we need that within DMB because it's the scene, you know, the scene has many, many influences and we need those all to be sort of pumping and working together at the same time to be having our thriving scene. You know, I think that there were periods in the, you know, in the music industry within drum and bass when we go with one sound a bit too much. When Bad Company blew up, when Ed Rush and Optical blew up, everyone started trying to make tunes like Bad Company and Ed Rush and Optical. So on one side at the beginning, it's good because you've got these guys making this amazing tech influenced drum and bass with amazing bass lines and such different kind of emotions. But then everyone starts doing the same thing and it kind of kills some of that emotion because you just hear that kind of thing all the time. So drum and bass has to have all its influences, I think, all happening at once. You know, the the dance floor stuff, the deeper stuff, the sort of kind of more militant techie stuff. Like we need that all happening. But I do think it's definitely, as a record label, it's, it's harder as far as to make a profit. I certainly aren't going to, you know, retire off Shogun Audio and Norse Kia. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's like you've got to have, and excuse the cliche, but you've got to have the love for it there. It's tough. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's a lot of work, but it's part of what I do. I can't imagine my life without Shogun, without the record label, you know, because it's, it's a big thing of what I do, man. As someone who's been playing and releasing and making the same genre of music for well over 
a decade. How do you keep yourself interested and passionate about it, especially through like an always changing market? Yeah, by working with these artists. You know, like I say, someone asked me that same sort of question the other day and I'll say the same thing, you know, I can be sent a tune by Joe Ford, just a massive tech horrendously insane banger do you know what i mean just like and you're like wow can't wait to play that out you know and then next minute i'll get sent something from rockwell who's you know he's a genius man do you know what i mean the music that he makes and you can't anticipate what he's going to come with so it keeps you so interested in it and that's part of the reason why i do you know like i've got the radio one show so i select music for that i hear drum bass all the time you know i'm constantly in this world of drum bass but Having moments like that, you know, Tom sent me, Rockwell sent me a couple of tracks the other day, just ideas for the album that it just sort of sporadically, you know, just came, came with these ideas and it's just amazing. Do you know what I mean? And that's what keeps me interested is is the variety of drum and bass. And that's one thing people, you know, drum and bass has had its knocks over the years. You know, it's kind of, a, oh, drum and bass is dead now, blah, 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 blah. It's not, it's always there. It's for me when we've have these different emotions and different styles in it it's what keeps it so exciting yeah it seems like people have been talking about a drama based revival for like six or seven years it's yeah always happening i just wonder what it's reviving from do you know what i mean because i was doing that you know i was reading in a magazine it's like oh yeah drum bass is dead now you know like will it ever come back and it's like i think i was on my way to a festival in belgium to play on an eight thousand capacity stage right well the people on this stage didn't seem to think it was dead. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's funny, man. It's just weird. the scene's always there. And then now and again, you you know, there'll be a couple of more commercial sort of DMB records released and people will be like, drum bass alive again. It's just like, no, it's alive to you because you didn't delve into it anything like what you should have, you know, delved into and sort of kind of engrossed yourself in the scene, which is kind of what you have to do with drum bass. You do, it is it does take over. You've got to kind of engulf yourself in it. Do you know what I mean? Or immerse yourself in it is probably a better word. You know, like, that's what you have to do with the music, you know? So, um, yeah, it does make me laugh because it's just, it's the only genre really that's been there nonstop. There's been other genres that have come in and out and kind of been big for a bit or whatever, but drum bass has been there for 20 years since the, you know, sort of father figures of DMB since they first kind of since it all came along and the Groove Riders and the Fabios and the Goldies were doing their thing, drum bass has constantly been there. And that's, you know, it's a, I'm very proud of it for that. Sound like I'm drum bass's dad now or something. Um, and you're definitely immersed in it. Do you ever get sick of drum and bass? Um, I do have to have moments where I get away. I'm not going to lie, you know, if I'm having a holiday that's not going to be a drum and bass moment. Do you know what I mean? It's like, if I'm on a beach, it's like, all right, I'm just going to have a little break now. Do you know what I mean? Unless it's something, unless it's something that I can just really listen to, you know, like a D-bridge mix or something, or kind of just a mix that I, I know I can just listen to. And it's not what, what I'm, I've played in the clubs the last three weeks before that. Have you ever had much interest in exploring other genres of dance music, other tempos? Yeah, I have done. I've, you know, there's been other little production bits that I've done. And I have messed about with other tempos now and again, but nine times out of ten, it comes back to a 172 on the BPM and, you know, ends up being drum bass again. Why do you think that is? I don't know, man. I just, I, I do love it. You know, I've been kind of fitting it like properly, you know, properly DJing for just over 10 years, you know, and before that, five years before that, I was kind of trying to be a DJ, you know, like, so 
it's part of me now. There's no sort of getting away from it. You know, I'm, I am properly, I love drum and bass. You know, I, like I say, that moment, the only time I'm not listening to drum and bass is, is probably once a year. If I'm sitting on a beach, it's like, right, I'm going to completely shut off now. But, you know, literally it's, it's definitely part of me. You've been working on an album for the past few years. For the past, basically forever. How's that coming along? Yeah, that's kind of, I just had to put that to the back burner a little bit. What I'm working on at the moment, I've been doing this really fun. It's been doing this Versus series. I had the first release, which was a collab with Total Science and a collab with Forward. And we had Jake's vocaling on that. And basically it's just a series where I've just been getting into the studio with friends, producers that I really rate and just doing some collabs, man, and just vibing out. No kind of, no sort of thought to, oh, let's try and make a song or some kind of, to you know, like it's literally dance floor, drum and bass, you know, no frills. And that's been really good fun, man, just going in and making tunes. And we had that first release, like I say, with Total Science and Forward. And I've worked with Icicle, done a track with Dimension, who's signed to MTA, working on some bits with some other producers and going to sort of do like, turn that into like a mini LP like a big EP, mini LP vibe. I don't know what it, like an eight track thing. And that's probably the closest I'm going to get to an album right now. I've been saying it for years. Yeah, I'm going to do an album. It's just, sometimes you just have to say, this isn't going to happen right now with everything else that's going on. You know, the label, DJing, production, you know, producing other stuff, the radio, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's the closest I'm going to get. But that's, I think we're going to have another 12 out in February which will have the track with Icicle that we've literally just finished on. Yeah, have a like a big EP thing to follow that. Yeah, you mentioned the radio. In 2012, you were hired at BBC Radio 1, correct? Yeah. So how did that come about? And, and what does that, that commitment entail? It came about completely out of the blue. I was literally boarding a plane to Japan. And my manager phoned me and was like, uh, we just had a phone call from Radio 1. And they want you to come in. I was like, oh, right, what, what do they want me to do? He's like, I don't know, but... I think it might be to do a show. Anyway, I kind of went out of my head, went and saw them and they said, look, you know, blah, blah, blah. Basically, Fabio and Groove Rider have been doing this show for 12, 13 years. It's been amazing. We're looking to make a change. Would you take over? And my first thought was, oh my God, Fab and Groove are going to kill me. <laughs> like, but they were so cool about it. And I took the job and it was a big thing. And I was like, oh, how am I going to be able to do this? You know, like I've got a lot going on as it was. You know, I saw sense and said yes or whatever. And yeah, I, was, I remember phoning Groove and uh, he did his typical, he wound me up and said, yeah, you're in trouble, mate. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, man. I'm, and he was, they were really, they were so good to me about it. They were like, you know, we, no, you know, we would have wanted you to do it more than anyone else. And they were just really supportive, man. Yeah. So kind of been doing it for the last two years and just love it. Kind of feel a bit of pressure because you're sort of like, right, I'm sort of, trying to tell the world what I think the drum and bass scene is saying right now, basically, and trying to sort of advertise the genre. But I enjoy it. I really do enjoy it, you know, getting the music in and, you know, each week putting it together. And I try and basically, as people know me for, you know, try and represent the whole sort of scene and, you know, make sure all the different flavours are in there and stuff, man. Like, that's an important thing to me and that's what I've tried to do with it. And, yeah, I love it. Um, if it's your job to tell the world about drum and bass, is, is it healthy for you right now? Do you feel like that the scene is healthy? Yeah, I do. I think it's very healthy. Like I say, I going back to what I said earlier about it needing all its elements. You know, what's great is that you can have um, a night with sub-focus and high contrast, for instance, 
sell out in London fabric or wherever. And then you can have what we've just had recently, like, you know, the exit and heads night, something like that, where that's a much more underground party and these events all sell out and there's some great parties out. And I think it goes back to the whole variety in the music thing, which is so important. It's so key. I think the only sort of thought I could sort of say is that I do wish things were a bit more together. I don't like everything splitting into subgenres and people saying, oh, we're, we're in the liquid scene or we're in the deep scene or we're in the techie scene or, you know, whatever. Like, it's hard, but I, I do wish it was a bit more together and it was all one and people were just, yeah, I'm into drum and bass. But I think that may be an unrealistic viewpoint because I'm looking at that from my point of view and other people are different. The same way that people like you said that might moan at me for, you know, originally being more into my tech and deeper stuff and then going doing a big festival and playing big kind of like, you know, uplifting, more uplifting sort of bangers type thing. Not everyone's on that. I'm on that because that's my vibe and what I'm into. I like it all. But, you know, I suppose people have their different tastes and the and the, the cross range of drum and bass styles is so vast and so wide. So it probably makes it hard. Do you know what I mean? Not everyone's like me, basically. So what have you learned about dance music, drum and bass, the industry, everything over the 10 years you were running Shogun Audio? Well, it's changed so much. You know, like when I first was going to get new music or whatever there was a place called music house that was you know classic kind of reggae dub cutting place basically like a cutting house so you'd go there the artists would take their dats of their music literally like dat tape and they'd cut their tune onto a dub plate and play that at the clubs and that's what they do and they spend all day there and that's how people went there and they'd socialize and swap music with one another and I was like a young up-and-coming DJ and I would go up there. So I'd get on the train from Brighton and go up to the... Cut. There'd be no sort of times to book in. You just went up there and you waited until it was your turn to cut your dubs. So I'd go there with my tunes that I'd managed to get hold of or whatever or try and meet a, you know, a big producer or a big DJ. And I learned a lot there. Do you know what I mean? Like going up and having that experience and, you know, you'd sort of like walk in and, right, I'm going to get my dubs cut now and... I'd walk in and I'd be like, hi, hey, mate, yeah, um, you know, I want to get my dub plates done and all that. And they'd be the bloke would be like, safe, sit down there. You know, like, and you'd be there for like hours waiting and you'd be there for five hours, something like that, sitting waiting. There's like all these big players of the scene, Jumping Jack Frost and Brian G's and Groove Riders and Fabio's. And then, you know, you'd sit there waiting for hours and, another big DJ walk in, usually Groove Rider, this happened a lot, many times, walk in and be like, he'd literally walk in and there'd be a queue of people sitting waiting and he'd be like, you know you lot are going to be here for a long time, you know that, don't you? And he would turn up, literally empty a plastic bag, a carrier bag of dat tapes. That was how you got music. That's how, you know, like, whereas now, it's totally different. You know, you'd meet people that way and now it's like, it's all email. It's all like, here's my new tune. A lot of the time, you know, like people were cutting dub plates and playing tunes out that wouldn't come out for a year and a half. Whereas now you get a label engine or something like that. I mean, I don't all the time, you know, but it does happen sometimes. You know, it's like out next week and it's like, that's your promo time. That is what I would say is the most amazing change in the industry. Like, 
So I was like, when that was all happening, I was up and coming and I sort of, I just caught the end of that type of scene before it, things started switching to digital and DJs use CDJs and all that kind of stuff. That's probably my maddest change is the way music is promoted and the whole, it's crazy. You know, like sometimes it's like, I'm quite lucky because obviously with the radio and, and obviously being, playing out a lot as a drum and bass DJ and people know me and stuff from that type of thing. They send me music early. Tunes get sent out a week before, sometimes out tomorrow. It's like, wow. And that does worry me a little bit because it does make me think, I know that people don't want, because of the whole digital thing and piracy and all that, the marketing lead time has to go down to a certain degree. But it's like, wow, what, you know, these tunes, it's, I think it kind of does restrict music being timeless a little bit. You know, some of these tunes were back in, the guys were playing them off dub plate and playing them at raves and people knew them from going out, not because they were so much on the radio. They knew them from going out and just hearing these tunes and that's what made an anthem. Whereas I think it's harder to make an anthem now because lead time is so short, things can't build up enough and people's attention spans are a lot less. That's, yeah, that's why I would say this, this whole thing has changed the most. So how do you deal with that? phone people off and moan most of the time and be like, how can you send me that tune a week before it came out? Do you know what I mean? I mean, like I say, that doesn't happen too often, you know, like I'll get a lot of music now and I'll get an email from the producer or the label and it's like, hey Ed, here's a few new things for you. Don't know when they're coming out. Please don't play them on the radio yet. And I'll just keep them to the clubs and, you know, but because I have to have new music. Do you know what I mean? I like seeing the reaction of stuff over a period of time. You know, I even get it with my business partner on with stuff on the label. I'd be like, "Yeah, I'm going to play the thingy on the thingy tune on the radio this week," and he'd be like, "Ed, it's it's not out for a month," and I'd be like, "What? Yeah, exactly. It's out in a month. That's quick." You know, like because these things just you know, it's it's a constant. My, my life is a constant battle for new music. So, what are the next ten years look like for Sugar Audio? I think keep progressing. You know, like ten years in, and personally, I'm not. I don't get bored of this, you know, like my sort of drive and passion is still there. You know, I don't really stop and just to keep progressing the label, man. And the challenge for me is to make the label as big and as, as well known as possible whilst keeping true to the sort of belief of having the music and, and letting artists do what they want and make what they want. And yeah, you like you say, there may be releases that jump out and, you know, stick out like a sore thumb sometimes because they're a bit different but I think it's just very important you know I'll always kind of stick to my philosophy of, of letting an artist make what they want to make Money in the answer It's the problem Growing up with nothing So it makes you want to rob them So you watch the orders And learn the trade Anyone will do anything If they're getting paid You grab the weight your hands, wait about, run them down, knock them out, get paid, get out. Money hungry monsters walk among them, rob the youngsters. They ran your country before your hunger come down to numbers. Nuff school duggery, grave digging, they shut the vungles. How can man be hungry when that's among us in vast abundance? Struggling currencies, nothing if you've enough in your rough. Struggling people are equal, but they ain't evil enough. Of course, more want, more, more force, more law, more war, more mon wars, boy. Problem, 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 problem. 
Get paid, get out. Problem, problem. 